Well, it's an honor to be here with you all. Um, well, it's just a privilege. Uh, it's been about six months since our little group has found you as God led us here to you all, and you feel very much in my heart like my tribe, and I'm thankful that God has led me to this body and that I have the privilege to come up here and, and share the word of God with you. So without further ado, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your people and the work that you have done in their lives. I pray that you would send the Spirit upon them, or to say it more rightly, to continue to fill them up with your Spirit, that you would open their heart to hear all truth, and that if I should speak anything in error, that they would completely forget it. Anoint me, Father, with your spirit, that I may speak rightly, boldly, and in a manner that edifies and builds your people up and brings you glory. Amen. It was during my elementary school years when my school was going to put on an evening program. I actually don't remember what the program was about, but in order for me to participate in this program, me and my classmates had to come dressed up as our favorite Bible character. But you couldn't pick Jesus because everybody would feel like they had to or they want to, and I think they wanted to spare the students that kind of ethical decision. But anyway, you had to come as your favorite Bible character other than Jesus. So I picked John the Baptist. And I can still remember parts of the costume that my mom made. It was this rectangular piece of fabric with a hole cut out in the middle. And you put it on, you know, and the front drapes over and the front and the back, uh, it drapes over the back. And then my mom could sew. I think she sewed up the side so I had little armholes. And uh, it kind of looked like a potato sack. But it was made out of this brown, shaggy material that looked like you know, camel's hair. And then I put on uh, a belt to be my leather belt. I'm not sure if I wore, if I wore uh, sandals or if I went barefoot, or maybe I started out in sandals and ended up barefoot. Um, I do remember I did not eat any uh, locust or wild honey at that time. <laughs> but at some point during the production, you're supposed to stand out and declare to everybody, to the audience, who you were. So I stood out and I said, John the Baptist. He was my favorite Bible character at that time. And I don't know what, what drew me to John. I liked him, but I don't really can, can recall all those things that I liked about him. He, you know, he grew up in the wilderness and I was growing up in the country, so maybe there was this kinship of two country boys uh, getting together. But he certainly had so many other admirable qualities that a young boy should look up to. He was bold, he was honest, and he was certainly courageous. And I love the fact that he would speak the truth to anybody, regardless of what those consequences may be for speaking the truth. But the most important thing about John, his reason for being, and what he would want to be known by as he pointed to Jesus. And that is something 
to look to and be attracted to. In recent years, I've had the privilege to get to know John a little better. I've been studying through the book of Matthew, and I especially love the way that Matthew tells the story of John because he's able to tell it in such a way that it captures the heart of what John the Baptist was all about. He's able to show how John makes us really think about who Jesus is. And if you haven't caught on yet, that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be looking at John the Baptist as Matthew tells him. Now, typically I like to go verse by verse on these kinds of things. That's a great way to study the Bible. It's a great way to present a sermon. But there's so much material here to cover, I'm going to have to take a broader stroke. So we're going to look at parts of Matthew chapter 3, which is where John is introduced. Then we're going to skip over to John chapter, excuse me, Matthew chapter 11, where we see that John has a question for Jesus. And then we're going to end in Matthew 14 with John's imprisonment. So without any further introduction, let's get into the text. Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so is our introduction to John in the book of Matthew. And it starts out wrapped up in prophetic overtones. John speaks like a prophet. He's dressed like Elijah, the prophet. And John is the fulfillment of prophecy. He's the one that was prophesied to be that voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord, or in the original Hebrew, it's the way of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's supposed to announce that Yahweh is coming, Yahweh's kingdom is coming, or to use John's words, the kingdom of heaven is coming. 
And to say that this coming isn't a momentous occasion is an understatement. This is one of the largest moments in all of history. And it's been given to John to announce this coming. How do you prepare for such an event? Or better yet, how should you prepare for such an event? Well, John does not leave us wondering whatsoever. He says, you need to repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But we need to draw that out. What does it mean to repent? We talk about it all the time. Need to repent, need to repent. But what does repentance mean? Well, if you go and look up the Greek word that's translated as repent is metanaeo. And if you go to a Greek lexicon, a Greek dictionary, the first thing it will tell you is that this word means change one's mind. Well, that's interesting. What do I need to change my mind about? Change your mind, change your mind, for the kingdom of heaven is coming. Well, the rest of the passage here is going to fill in those details about what you need to change your mind about. And I'm going to share a little story, too, that I think is going to help you understand what it means to change your mind. But if you looked at verse 6, it says that the people, after John had called them to repentance, they come to him to be baptized, and they confess their sins. And then in verse 11, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. So you see that there's this link between repentance, changing your mind, and sin, and baptism. So there's a link between changing your mind and sin. Now here's the story that I want to share with you. Because, you know, speaking of baptism, you probably don't know this, but my son is actually interested in baptism. It's a great time to be a dad and start having those kinds of questions. He's asking us questions. Well, well, when can I be baptized? In fact, on the way here to church today, he says, by the way, when, when can I be baptized? So he's asking questions, and of course, we're asking him questions. Because if he's to be baptized, well, he needs to know what that means. And not only does he need to know what baptism means, he needs to know what the gospel means. And to know what the gospel means, you've got to know what sin means. You've got to know what repentance means. You've got to know what faith in Christ means. So I've been working with him to ask him some questions to try to help him understand these, these ideas. So I came up with this little metaphor, this imagery of a tree and I said to Silas, I said, um, Silas, what is the fruit of sin? What is the fruit of sin? And he did pretty good. He said, uh, disobedience to God? And I said, that's right. See, he's learned that. I said, any time that God tells us to do something and we don't do it, well, that's disobedience. And any time that God tells us not to do something and then we do it, for well, that's disobedience as well. And you see that disobedience, I, I phrase it as in that's fruit. Those are expressions of sin. Now, that may sound odd to you, but see, I'm painting a tree, a sinful tree, a sinful individual who is producing fruit. But what is motivating an individual to disobey God? What is the heart of sin or 
as the next question that I ask him, what is the root of sin? Well, he had trouble with that one, and you might be scratching your heads too, or maybe not. But the root of sin is this. I want to be God. I don't want him to be God. I want to be Lord of my life. I don't want God to be Lord of my life. You see, if you go way back to the Garden of, of Eden and you go back to the temptation, yeah, Adam and the woman, they ate from the tree. That was the disobedience. That was the fruit of sin. But what motivated them to do that? Where well, Satan said, well, you will be as God, knowing good and evil, which I interpret to be deciding good and evil. You could be God. You don't have to listen to him anymore. You make the decisions. It's on you. And ever since that moment, every children of Adam has, has that power of sin working in their life, fueling the fruits of those sins in our lives. Doesn't matter what the sin is, what lies behind it is a rebellion to say, you're not king, I'm king. That is the root of sin. And that's what you have to change your mind about. That's what repentance is. Who's the Lord of your life? Is it you or is it God? That's what repentance is calling you to do. It's calling you to evaluate the circumstances because why? Because God's kingdom is coming. The king is coming. Are you going to submit or are you going to rebel? You need to change your mind and you need to submit. And it's much more than just a thought, a casual change of opinion or assent. It's deeper. It is down into the very heart of who you are. This is your, the root of who you are. You need to say, create in me, O God, a clean, a clean heart. You need to have a broken and contrite spirit. That root of sin needs to be taken out. And God can take that out. And if you take it out and you put Jesus, you put God in his rightful place in your life, then what are you going to do? Well, you're going to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see how this all now connects? You change your mind about who is king and you truly mean it and it's a true decision in your heart, then it's going to result in a confession that you're a sinner and it's going to result in a life that lives out that repentance. You're going to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And it's your decision to make. You see, that's the problem with, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They come out and they have a presumption. Well, Abraham's our father. Abraham was promised the kingdom of heaven. We're going to get in just on that technicality. Oh, no. John says, oh, no. That's not going to work. You're not going to get in because of what your parents have done. You stand before God, you and him, and you have to make the call. If you want to be a child of Abraham, then you need to act like Abraham. You need to have his spirit. He had a spirit of repentance and a spirit of faith, and you need to act like him. You need to repent. What if you choose not to repent? 
What if you want to stay in your rebellion? What if you want to keep saying, I'm the Lord of my life and not God? Well, you don't want to do that. John makes it so abundantly clear what will happen to you. Verse 10, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 12, the chaff, those who don't repent, well, he will burn with unquenchable fire. If you choose to remain in your rebellion, then you will suffer the wrath to come. Now, this is heavy. John's message is heavy. It's sobering. It's full of doom. It's offensive. Who likes to be called a snake? Who likes to be called a sinner? Because if I tell you to repent, that implies that you are a sinner. And some people may not like that. And all this judgment talk, all this hellfire and brimstone talk, I don't like that. But you see, you've just missed something very beautiful in the midst of all of this. John's message is actually a message of hope. Let me say it like this. Let me rephrase John's message to kind of help you catch this. What if John had come out and said, run, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Find the caves, call on them to bury you and hide you from the wrath of the Lamb that's to come. Is there any hope in that? No. Try to get away, but you can't. But when John comes out, he doesn't say that. He says, repent. Because when the kingdom of heaven comes, if you repent, you can survive the fire. There is hope for you. You can be taken by the Messiah like precious wheat and stored up safe and securely into a barn. There is hope for you. And John's message may be full of doom and gloom, but it's also a message of hope. It's a message of salvation. Now, as we read this passage, did you notice that there was this transition? In the beginning, John talks about the kingdom of heaven is coming. So there's this focus on the kingdom of, of heaven. But as you get through the text, towards the end, it shifts from a, con- a coming kingdom to the coming of a person, which is no doubt Christ. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see the transition? It went from the coming kingdom to the king himself. And John clearly sees that this coming one is so much greater than him. He says, I can't even carry his sandals. Back in that that time, slaves carried sandals. That was something that was reserved to slaves. And John says, I'm not even worthy of that. Far from being some rebel that's always destroying institutions, John is certainly a man of submission. He's just against evil institutions. But he's wholeheartedly 
in submission and surrender to the kingdom of heaven and to its king. And he understands his place. He is completely unworthy. And his baptism, well, it's lesser. This coming one has a better baptism that's coming. But did you notice this? That for John, the Christ, the coming one, he's invincible, right? He's unstoppable. You cannot resist him. It's his winnowing fork. It's his wrath that you have to be afraid of. And there's no getting away from him. He's going to clear that threshing floor. It's not going to be like some wicked are going to get away or they're going to overcome. That is not a possibility, according to John. John views the Christ as this conquering Christ. And John has many Old Testament passages that will affirm this belief and this view of the Messiah. But here's the thing. When he actually meets the Christ, he's going to find out that his expectations about him are not quite right. Look at verses 13 and following. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. This is an odd moment for John. He cannot understand why the Christ would take his baptism. It's a lesser baptism. And John understands that. In fact, John goes, I need your baptism. What are you doing coming to me? But, you know, it's strange for another reason. John's baptism is about the need for repentance, right? People confessing their sins. That's why they go down into that water. I'm a sinner. That's why I'm going down into this water and I'm confessing my sins. And I'm being baptized saying I'm dying to this old life and I'm, I'm, I'm rising and I'm going to walk a life of repentance. So what does it mean when the Messiah himself goes down into the water? He doesn't need to confess his own sins. He doesn't need to repent, does he? Amen, he doesn't. Then what does it mean? Well, it means a lot of things actually. But for John, it means there's a lot more to the Christ than what he's expecting. And you know, the passage affirms that what Jesus did here, being baptized, was the right thing to do. Because immediately afterwards, when Jesus comes out out of the baptism, what happens? The Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And then the Father speaks and says, this is my Son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. John can't understand what's going on here, but Jesus knows what's going on here, and Jesus was right to go down into those waters. But John has questions, and they're going to grow. And what you see now is the story, as Matthew tells it, moves away from John, and rightly so, right? John's got to decrease so that Jesus may increase. We're here to read about Jesus And so John takes a back seat. But before John goes, Matthew notes a curiously small but very important detail. 
John is arrested. In chapter 4, Matthew just briefly mentions, by the way, John is arrested. And nothing more is said about that until seven chapters later. You get to Matthew chapter 11. John's brought back into the story. He's still in prison. Matthew doesn't tell us why he's in prison. He will soon enough. But more importantly, we see that John is having doubts about Jesus as the Christ. Listen to verse 2 and 3. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Well, that's very surprising, isn't it? That the messenger of the Messiah now turns around and says, Are you the right guy? Did I get this right? You start to wonder, what kind of man is John that would lead him to doubt that Jesus is the Christ? Well, we don't have to to wonder very long because Jesus himself tells us who John is. Look at verses 7 through 13. As they went away, as John's disciples went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? You see, a reed just moves however the wind blows it. This person says this. Oh, I like that idea. That person says that. Oh, I like that idea. Is that the type of person that John is? Swayed by public opinion? Is he a fickle person? Wavering from one opinion to another? You know, because if he's a fickle person, then, then his doubt becomes understandable. But Jesus' question implies that, no, John's not a reed. Verse 8, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did John wear? A garment of camel's hair, which was not soft. It's rugged. It's an indication of John's hard lifestyle in the wilderness. John knows how to endure hardship. He's not a weak man broken by prison. Now, suffering, that wouldn't change his mind. It wouldn't change his convictions. So if John isn't a weak, fickle man, then what kind of man is he? Verse 9. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come." 
Well, that is an unexpected remark. Despite John's doubts, Jesus not only still considers him a prophet, but up to the time of the Christ, he is the greatest man to have ever lived. Greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than David, greater than Daniel, fill in the, br- fill in the blank, he's the greatest. And even more, he is still the herald to the Christ. He hasn't lost his position just because he doubted the Christ. Jesus still affirms, he's my messenger. He's the one that's supposed to go before me. But you know, that doesn't answer the question still. Why is he doubting? In fact, it intensifies the question in some regards. Why did this prophet of God, why did the greatest man who ever lived, why did Elijah, why did the forerunner of Christ, his herald, doubt him as the Christ? And honestly, the text doesn't come out and make that explicit. You have to piece it together by the context, and and you have to piece it together by what isn't said. You see, there's a struggle to understand God's word here, and that actually may be the point, because that brings you right next to where John is. See, John knows scripture, and he is struggling to understand them. He's looking at all these Old Testament prophecies and he's trying to pull them all together. He thought that he had it all all put together, that his eschatology was all straight. But then the Christ comes and things are not being fulfilled in the way he expects. Let me show you what I mean. Let me share some messianic prophecies to you from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 29, 18 through 20. On that day, the deaf will hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted also will increase their gladness in Yahweh, and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless will come to an end, and the scorner will be finished. Indeed, all who are intent on doing evil will be cut off. Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. You see, you look at these passages and they're all talking about the days of the Christ. And you see what flows? Both blessing and judgment flow in the days of the Christ. So when John hears the report of the Christ, when he hears about the deeds of the Christ, he notices that something is missing. 
that the vengeance of God is not to be found? Where is the judgment that John has been warning people about? Where is the axe, the winnowing fork? This is what I said that the Christ would do, and I see the Christ out there, and he's not doing it. Maybe he's not the Christ. Maybe he's like me. Maybe he's another front runner. Why am I in prison? Doesn't the Christ proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners? And why am I here? And sitting in prison with his thoughts and his interpretation of Scripture, you can imagine the trial of John's mind. It's not prison that is breaking John. It's his expectations. And that is why he sends the questions to Jesus. So how does Jesus respond? Verse four through six. And Jesus answered them, the disciples, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. See, Jesus, his response references these passages from Isaiah that I just read, and you can see that he doesn't mention anything about vengeance or judgment in those passages at all. And I believe that is profoundly intentional. Because John's expectations have caused him to overlook the obvious fulfillments of Isaiah's prophecy. John is going to this part of Scripture and to that part of Scripture and saying, well, that hasn't been fulfilled and that hasn't been fulfilled and that hasn't been fulfilled. And Jesus comes up to John and says, John, but this has been fulfilled and this has been fulfilled and this has been fulfilled, and this has been fulfilled. And you know what? That's enough. That's enough to testify that I am the Christ. I am the coming one. If I fulfill these prophecies, I will fulfill all of them. But I will fulfill them in my own way and in my own time. And it may not be how you imagine it. So this is what you need to do, John. You need to trust me. And you need to stop trusting your expectations. In fact, the problem is not me at all. The problem is your expectations. I'm not going to change, but they need to. You need to trust me, John, because there's blessing in that. Now, isn't that a profound lesson for all of us? How many of us go to Scripture and we start taking this part of Scripture and this part of Scripture and we start building our expectations about what God should be doing in our lives and then all of a sudden we don't see that happening and so we start blaming God for it when it's not God's fault, it's our expectations. How many people have been sick and they read about healing And they say, well, God, you heal. And God says, no, 
I've got other plans. You need to trust me. Why do I need to trust you? Because I saved you from hell. That's enough, isn't it? That's enough. Fill in the blank. What expectations are you having in your life and then going to Scripture and building them off of and you're coming to find out that it's wrong? And what do you need to do about that? Well, just like John, Jesus kindly says, repent. You need to change your mind about those things. But we're not done with John's expectations. There's something bigger out there that we need to talk about. And before I move on, isn't that an amazing thing? The last thing that Jesus says to John that we have recorded is, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's it. That's the last words I'm going to give you. And John, you know what's going to happen? He's just going to sit in that prison. And then we come to this next part, Matthew chapter 14, to the end of John. In chapter 14, Matthew tells us that John was imprisoned for exposing the unlawful marriage of Herod and Herodias. And when John did that, oh, it made Herodias mad. She hated John for for calling out her sin. And she wanted to kill him. She got him in prison, and then she manipulated Herod into finally getting her wish. This story is reminiscent of Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah. You might be familiar with that. You know, it's about a weak man who's being manipulated by an evil woman in order to go about to kill a prophet of God. That's what the story of Ahab, Jezebel, and Elijah were about. And here we are again with an Elijah, with a Jezebel, and with an Ahab. But there's one profound difference between those two stories. In the original story, Elijah is delivered from Jezebel, right? She's after him the entire time. And God sends down the chariots of fire, this profound, dramatic deliverance, right? And Elijah is taken straight up into heaven. Jezebel, you, you can't touch that prophet. But what about this Elijah? Well, there's no chariots of fire for John the Baptist. Herodias will have her way and she will behead the John, the Elijah. She will behead John the Baptist. He will die at her hands. And that presses us to that question. Where is John's invincible Christ? Because he didn't show up and he didn't set John free and now John's dead. Well, he's not there. In fact, verse 13 in chapter 14 says that when Jesus hears that Herod has his eye on Jesus, has taken notice of Jesus, what does Jesus do? 
he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate, desolate place by himself. Herod's got his eye on Jesus, and Jesus retreats. And if you read Matthew, you actually see this happen a few times. Jesus' life is in danger, and he withdraws, or he retreats. He's still going, um, isn't the Messiah supposed to be an invincible, unstoppable individual? Why does he seem to be running away? Is he afraid? Is he powerless? Well, Matthew dispels that very quickly. If you read the next, the next story after uh, John's beheading, it's the feeding of the 5,000. And then the story after that is Jesus walking on the water. Do you have any doubt that Jesus has power? Well, not after that. One man can feed 5,000 and then he can walk on water. No other man can do that. This is not a question about whether or not Jesus has power, but it's a question of why doesn't he use that power to save his messenger? Surely, John didn't deserve to die in that manner. But to that, let me say this. John may not have deserved a death like that, but he does deserve death. He's a son of Adam, isn't he? He's a sinner, just like all of us. And the wages of sin is death. We might forget that John, the greatest man to live up until this time, is still a sinner. And the greatest of us deserves death. It's easy to forget because his righteousness stands out so starkly compared to Herod and Herodias. But for all John's righteousness, he's still in need of salvation. And you see, that's the road that Jesus is on. He's not heading to Herod's prison because that's not really John's prison. He's heading to the prison of sin and death. John's biggest danger isn't Herod's prison. It's not even death. John's biggest danger is the very judgment that he preaches about. Jesus cannot be the conquering Christ right now because that isn't what John needs. Right now, what John needs is the suffering servant. He needs the Messiah who will take upon himself the very judgment that John declares will come. That's what John needs. And you know, it's not that John is the only one who needs saving. So do people like Herod, and so do people like Herodias. Did Christ just come to say, light sinners? The greatest of us? That's who he died for, for those? We'll save John the Baptist, but let's not save Herod and Herodias. They're a brood of vipers. They, wait a minute. The call to repent to them too, isn't it? Christ came to save not just the light sinners, but also the vilest of sinners. And that's why it makes sense when you go back and you look 
and you understand now why Jesus was getting into those baptismal waters. He wasn't being the conquering Messiah. He was being the suffering servant. He was going into those waters to identify with his people because what his people need were sinners. Excuse me, what his people need was a savior who could identify with their needs. And that's what we find at the end of Matthew. That Jesus goes and is imprisoned himself and is beaten and is mocked and he lays down his power and does not act like the conquering Christ but fulfills the task that his father sent him to do as the suffering servant and he goes on that cross and he dies to save sinners like you and me and the greatest among us. And you see, John didn't understand that. And, and Jesus doesn't explain that to him. But what John was supposed to do was just to have faith and trust in the Messiah. And I believe he did. He held on to the very end. And you see, without that, without Jesus coming and being the suffering servant, John's message will not make sense. John talks about a baptism that requires repentance and then you'll be saved. But actually, that's not quite true. We talk about repent and be saved. Your job is to repent and be saved. But it will not work unless there's a sacrifice. John can get up there all day and say, repent and repent and repent. But if Jesus does not come and die on that cross, then your repentance isn't going to mean anything. Because you can go up to God and say, I'm very sorry for the sins that I have done. And he's going to say, okay. But we still have to deal with the sins that you have done. What's going to wash those sins away? How are we going to deal with the sins that you have done? My justice will not allow me to just simply overlook your sins. And I'm sorry. Well, I'm not sorry. But I think it's good that you're sorry for your sins, but it is not enough. If John wants the baptism that is to come from the Messiah, the Holy Spirit and fire, that baptism that that, that will purify God's people, that will wash them from their sins, then in order for Jesus to secure that, he has to be the suffering servant and he has to die on that cross. Do you see how it all comes together? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And that's the gospel brought together. Remember I said earlier, I'm trying to teach my son what the gospel is. It's about knowing what sin is. It's about knowing what repentance is. And it's this last piece. It's knowing what faith is. Faith in the atoning work of Christ to wash away my sins. We need it all. Not just part of it. We need it all. Because there's a blessing in holding on and having faith in Christ. So you may at times run into the mysteries of theology and can't understand them. Or you may run into the mysteries of your own life where you don't understand what God is doing. But the lesson here is to hold on and to have faith throughout all of those trials and all those tribulations.
And you may not understand why everything is happening that is happening. You may not understand why it seems that even though like you, like John, you stand up for righteousness and the world around you just seems to keep on winning. And when you die, it seems like you're the one that lost. That's not the end. This isn't the end of John. We can't just stop here. This is not John's end. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And that is a cryptic, very beautiful passage. But the one thing that I pick out of that is here are the saints that were beheaded for Christ and they are victorious. And I think we're going to see John the Baptist among those saints. Amen? Amen. Let me close with this. The irony, the beautiful irony of all this is that now, this side of the cross, John's message is so much more fitting. Because when Jesus does come, and he is coming, he is going to be that conquering Christ. So what do you need to do to prepare for when Christ is coming? You need to repent. You need to change your mind about who is Lord. Is it you or is it Jesus? And you need to have faith in his atonement to wash your sins away. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen? Amen.